You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. My name is Breach Burke, and I'm your host for these episodes. This week, I would like to take a little bit of a turn back to ancient Greece. And the subject of this week's talk is going to be Kirke, uh, sometimes pronounced in uh, sort of our Western parlance as uh, Circe. Uh, and she is considered to be a, a goddess of, uh, well, she, she's primarily associated with witchcraft. Um, the main story that we know of her comes from the Odyssey, uh, in which she is turns uh, Odysseus's men into pigs. And she is considered to be the daughter of... Let me get all of my entitlements here. Uh, she's the daughter of the sun god Helios, and she's uh, and the, her mother is um, uh, Perse, who is one of the Oceanids. Um, the Oceanids are uh, nymphs that were born of um, the Titans Oceanus um, and Tethys, <clears throat> uh, which were, who were the uh, original sort of one, one sort of has to do with fresh water, one with salt water, sort of the original Titans um, of the of the great seas. And their children um, with the with the oceanids, and the oceanids were about three thousand of these nymphs, water spirits, water elementals, really. Um, so she is the child of a water elemental and the sun god Helios, and in some versions, she's the daughter of the goddess Hecate, which is not entirely, um, you know, given her her role as an enchantress um, and as somebody who guides the way through the dark. Um, her, her association with Hecate is not entirely. Um, you know, I mean, the idea of her, some versions of her being a child of Hecate is not that strange. Um, now there's a number of stories about her. Um, I think that, and again, the main one is the one that we see in the Odyssey, in which case when, uh, when Odysseus and uh, his men end up, um, in their, in their travels, they're leaving Troy, um, and they're, you know, they've stopped at all these different islands along the way. Um, by this time, they've gone to the island of the Lotus Eaters, which I'm going to talk about again in a minute because I feel like it has a little bit of a... There's at least some kind of a comparison point here with, with what happens later, um, which is where uh, some of his men eat the, the Lotus flowers and then they sort of fall into a state of forgetfulness. Um, and so he pulls the rest of his men away before... And he loses any more of them because they just basically just want to sit around and and not do anything after doing that. Um, they go to the island of uh, Polyphemus, where he has to outwit Polyphemus to keep him from killing and eating all of his men, Polyphemus being a cyclops. And he manages to outwit him, but then he very stupidly tells Polyphemus who he is as he's leaving. And uh, Polyphemus's father is Poseidon the god of the sea, which so, you know, of course he calls upon his father to avenge him, and, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're on a vessel headed for home on the sea, you really don't want to anger the god of the sea. So uh, Odysseus kind of ends up being bounced around quite a bit. They go to the island of the Lastragonians, who are cannibals. Um, so he's, he's not having a very good run of luck. Um, and then he comes to Kirke's island. And initially, he doesn't go on the boat. His men kind of go to scout things out. And when he, you know, when they get there, she come, you know, she sees them, she welcomes them, you know, she offers them feasting and food and drink and, um, <clears throat> but there's, uh, uh, Eurylochus, 
one of Odysseus's men, he he sort of is suspicious of this whole setup. There's something about it. Um, I think the terminology used was um, <clears throat> uh, an overly peaceful facade. That there's something about it. It's almost too good to be true. There's something about it that doesn't quite seem right. And what happens is that as soon as she the, the men drink this particular concoction she has of wine and, and certain herbs, uh, they become they become turned into pigs. Okay, so um, in all of the different stories about Kirke, uh, she turns men into animals of some kind, or of something you know like, or even if it's not you know former lovers or or men. Um, she's surrounded by primeval animals in some versions um, related to the Argonautica in particular. So the, the connection between Kirke and sort of wild animals uh, or the animals is, is very, um, I feel it's very significant. Okay. Uh, now, of course, what ends up happening is your locus manages to go back to the ship, tell Odysseus what's going on. And when he goes to try to negotiate and find out what's happening, um, he's stopped by the god Hermaeus, uh, who, was all, who was also thought of in the Roman as Mercury, if that's um, <clears throat> a little more, um, uh, uh, if that, you know, well, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast know the Hermaeus-Mercury thing. I, in case you don't, they're the same deity. Um, but Hermaeus, um, you know, who comes as a messenger of Athena, because Athena is the one who looks after Odysseus. She's sort of the feminine warrior figure who looks after Odysseus. And Athena comes to him and she says, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, Hermaeus comes to him and, tell, and says to him, you know, don't, don't approach her directly. Um, he gives him a plant. And the plant is described in um, a very interesting fashion. It is called moly, M-O-L-Y. And the way that Homer describes it is he says, the root is black while the flower was white as milk. The gods call it moly, dangerous for a mortal man to pluck from the soil, but not for the deathless god. All lies within their power. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this, okay, you think about it, it's black at the root, but white and white as snow at the top. So there's, to me, there's almost a metaphor there for um, the sort of uh, the fearful side of the feminine. It's, it looks white as milk. It looks pure. It looks beautiful. It's aesthetically pleasing at the top, but the root is dark. Okay. So just think about that. Uh, so, and then of course, if you've heard the expression, holy moly, um, you now know that it's referring to this plant and the, and the whole idea was that there was, it was, this was just some kind of a sacred plant. It was very, um, the fact that it was dangerous for mortals to pick suggests that there's something about it connected with death and mortality. Um, because, you know, because the gods can pick it very easily. And of course they're the ones who give it to Odysseus, um, and he is able to thwart uh, Kirke's spells in that way. And then Kirke instead switches tactics and she becomes an ally. She seduces him. She takes him to bed. She changes all his men back. Um, but one of the things that she has to do in this process is that she has to, um, one of the things Hermaeus says is she's still very dangerous. You have to make her swear an oath on all the names of the gods that she's not going to take your manhood. Okay. Now, another very interesting theme, what does it mean to take one's manhood? Well, you know, there's certainly the, the image of castration, you know, if we want to get very Freudian about this. Um, you know, and and really one of the root fears of the feminine, when we think about the, the devouring or the, back to the vagina dentata or something like that, the idea of the feminine as devouring or emasculating. 
Okay. So, all right, so we're already seeing these kinds of associations with her. Somebody, you know, pretty on the outside, dark and dangerous, perhaps, at the root. Um, when we, you know, see the symbolism of the plant. And then also the symbolism of, um, you know, these these other uh, things that she, you know, the, these, other, these other kinds of associations with her. Um, and, and, and this is sort of the, um, the archetype of this, this temptress figure, which is actually what Jung would refer to as the anima. Um, now, the anima is considered to be, um, again, Jung never really perfectly defines what the anima, anima is or what it means. And part of that he explains in his writing is that because the archetypes themselves can never really be known, you can't pin them down to a label or a definition. You just kind of know them when you see them. And Kierke is, is sort of embodies the qualities of what we think of as the anima archetype because she's magical, okay? Um, and if you think about a lot of folk tales, one of the motifs in folk tales is that you frequently have the woman who is, um, <clears throat> I don't want to put it, you know, the, you know that there's a, you know, somebody's going out on a journey, uh, there's some kind of a crisis, whether they're sent out on the journey or whether they... Um, you know, willingly go on a quest, there is some kind of magical female who helps them. And this is the anima figure. Now, the anima is the feminine that's encountered um, by the masculine in, in, a, in a sort of hero mythology kind of uh, construct, which is actually quite, um, I'm going to say somewhat uh, <clears throat> patriarchal in its, um, in its leanings, just, you know, in its implications anyway, and in its values. Um, the feminine is a dangerous force to be, um, you know, um, I think the way Jung describes it is she injects her poison um, right off. Um, if we think about what we said about Medusa and the, and the stinging, um, you know, these, the idea of these tentacled monsters as Medusas, you know, it's the idea of the, the, the sort of poisonous feminine. The feminine, and, and what, the, what the poison does is it, it takes away uh, a man's sense of control. It may take away his sense of reason. Uh, and that's where the emasculation part would come in. Not so much that there's literal emasculation, but more that the woman is now the woman is the one in control, because the woman is powerful. Her beauty is powerful. Her uh, abilities make her powerful, and so therefore the man feels threatened. And the general um, response that we have seen in psychology and mythology is that the man, you know, needs to take some kind of an action to. Um, you know, uh, subdue that force or to, um, you know, uh, to tame it, uh, which can also happen if, if the other person falls in love with them. I mean, that can, that can go both ways when a woman is sort of possessed by the animus. The animus has a whole different dynamic to it. Um, it was described once as more like a crowd of men moving in on a woman and judging her, um, rather than a single, uh, image per se. But I, I might want to save that discussion for, for another time. But that has been, um, Another one of the discussion, you know, the difference between the anima and the animus. And Jung, but Jung also felt that the anima was terribly important because not only is it um, the sort of archetype that teaches men how to love, and not just sexual love or lust, but that can lead one, you know, perhaps through those paths to real love, to genuine love that's not, you know, not that, not that sexuality and those things aren't important, but that as anybody who's been in a long-term relationship knows, those are not the only things. Those are not the things that necessarily last, okay? Um, that's an aspect of things that um, may or may not always be there, okay? 
So this is more about, um, you know, it's sort of a, a gateway not only to love, but also to creativity, because the anima acts as a kind of a muse figure. Um, they, are, they, they behave in such a way that, um, that inspires the man, that um, takes the man outside of whatever his own, um, well, his own ego, his own personality or persona, his apparent nature. Uh, that's why when there's such a very strong rejection of the feminine by men, um, it often leads to a feeling of powerlessness because really within the anima lies the power. Okay. Now, in the case of Odysseus, what he does is he, um, you know, he, he he manages to sort of, you know, beat her at her own game with the magic, but through the help of Hermaeus, mind you. It's not something um, he would have known to do on his own. He also needed a magical helper in the form, you know, in the form of the this sort of liminal god who can cross over between... Um, between categories, and so, um, and then he, of course, they said he to, to pretend to threaten her with his sword. Now, remember this. So this is almost like a game uh, or a ritual that's played, and in the end, you know, you know, in other words, in the end, there's no real malice, there's no real intent to harm, but there's, um, but it, but it's a way of um, trying to get uh, Kirke to. You know, not, not not that he's going to try to you know make her his slave. Although it, it has been argued that okay, so now she's gone from being this goddess to being this enchantress to now being like the domestic, the one who uh, cooks and cleans for Odysseus and his men. So you know there there is kind of that social inflection that you know um, social ethical inflection that's that's there and that's certainly um, worth thinking about in terms of I, I, what I feel though is I, I I tend to look at it more on the mythological or the archetypal level. Um, where those particular categories of social classes and roles and categories don't matter because it's not really talking about that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that they can't influence um, the narratives that we have or the way that we see ourselves or the way that we see the roles of men and women uh, in society and the way that we react when we see people who don't fit neatly into those categories, you know, the people who are, who are transgender, for example. Um, who don't, um, who aren't, you know, neatly into the male or female role. It's, it's not, um, and, you know, it, it, something that, that, that's come to light, and I just feel, not to digress too much on this point, um, but I feel part of it is just to show, you know, these roles, there may be um, something in the archetypal mythology, but that doesn't have to translate to the social level, okay? It doesn't have to translate to what your role is in life. Um, you know, it, it's not, one, is, one does not necessarily inform the other, okay? So, in other words, the anima is not all women. The animus is not all men, okay? And strictly speaking, they are the souls of the opposite. The animus is in the woman, the anima is in the man. It's that, that feminine part of a man, the masculine part of a woman. Um, but those, you know, there, there's no um, mutually exclusive categories. I mean, there's, there's maybe biological differences, but there's no, I think on the social level, um, you can't, you, you can't make, um, these very strict delineations. So anyway, I feel like I'm getting too far off on that. I don't want to, um, to do that. Um, there are some other stories of Kirke, okay? Um, now also in the Odyssey, she is the one who helps, uh, Odysseus practice the rite of necromancy, in which he raises the spirit of Tiresias, and he ends up talking to many other spirits, um, including those of warriors like Achilles who have passed, his own mother, um, you know, different, um, 
people who he's seen, you know, who, who he sees in the underworld who come to drink of the blood of the sacrifice and to speak. But it's uh, it's Tiresias is the one he wants to speak to because, you know, because this is Kirke's way of helping him. You know, here's you must go into the underworld to find the way home. And of course, um, as one of my um, teachers had pointed out, because you never really can go home again. Uh, he will go back to Ithaca. It will not be the same Ithaca that he left. And he will not be the same. Okay. Um, so, so his underworld journey, his katabasis, his, his need to pass through through the darkness, through the belly of the whale, as it were, um, is mediated by Kirke. Now, that's, that is literally the role of the anima. I mean, that is, that is what the anima does. It's that, you know, it's, um, that's why Hecate is such an important figure in that respect. She, you know, you're, when you're going through the darkness of the underworld, she holds the torch ahead of her so that you can see where you're going. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, you know, but there's others, um, uh, Hesiod's Theogony, he talks about, um, he claims that, um, Kirke bore Odysseus three sons, Ardeus, uh, Latinus, um, and Telogonus. Uh, there is actually a what they call part of the epic cycle, uh, some Trojan War, like post-Trojan War accounts, either during the war or post-war, end of the war, covering territory that the Iliad and the Odyssey, well, the Iliad in particular, does not necessarily cover in terms of the war, or that the Odyssey covers in terms of the post-war. And um, so the Telogony is, um, th it seems like there might be a couple different versions of it, but we only have the notes about it, you know, about, you know, it's one of those things where it's mentioned, but um, we don't have the full story. But um, in, in the Telogony, um, Kirke, um, <clears throat> um, Telogonus, the one son, she tells Kirke tells him that Odysseus is his father. He she he goes to search for his father, but he goes with a poisoned spear. And then. Um, <clears throat> So then he so then he ends up running into his father in his search, unknowingly kills him. He brings the father's corpse back to um, <clears throat> her island, along with Penelope and Telemachus, uh, the other son. Um, and in some versions, um, there are marriages. I'm trying to think who who mar I'm trying. Telemachus marries Kirke. I don't know. There's there's some different. Um, I'm trying to remember what the matchups were there. But in, in those cases, like, yeah, it, it's kind of a very weird ending if you see how the Odyssey ends. Um, this idea of Penelope and, and uh, Telemachus going to Kirke's island. Um, and so, and that supposedly Kirke made all of them immortal. Um, but, but in other versions, I think she, um, Telemachus eventually kills Kirke and then Odysseus kills himself. There's, there's all kinds of, like, these, these other narratives. Um, but these are all kind of based on the idea that she did actually... Um, have uh, that, that Odysseus fathered three children by Kirke. Okay, and in some versions, by the way, these are founders of Italian cities. Um, Telogonus, in particular, was considered to be the um, the founder of the Etruscans, and the Etruscans are at least one group of people who um, act as the predecessors to what we think of as the Romans. Okay, so very interesting. Um, Rome, of course, picks Aeneas to be their um, their hero and to head their epic. Um, rather than uh, the Greek side, rather than having um, Odysseus or Kirke or, or that kind of, you know, be, be part of their heritage. But in some versions, 
the that's it, it that they're, they're, that remakes that Greek connection. I think the Romans purposely wanted to certainly Virgil was trying to stay away from the Greek, you know, like su- suggesting that Roman civilization came out of Greek, which actually many aspects of it did. Um, there was that sort of um, the term they use is translatio studi. It, it's a transfer of knowledge, uh, usually from east to west. And so you see the knowledge of the Far East come to um, what we think of as you know Mesopotamian region, uh, and then Greece, and, and then those areas, and then moving farther west to Rome and to Italy, and then eventually to Europe, and then eventually to the Americas. I mean, that's at least one sort of theoretical, historical, um, historiographical way of looking at things. Okay, so but the Romans, because they were um, they had been there had been war. Um, and they were kind of, you know, establishing themselves as, you know, establishing their greatness, their gr- the greatness of their lineage. They, they, you know, Virgil opted to make that lineage um, related to the heroes and the demigods related to Troy rather than to Greece. Okay, so that, um, so perhaps that is one of the reasons that this epic, uh, the Telogony, kind of um, faded off as kind of a side story rather than the one that we tend to know. Um because, you know, because that was not, that was not the official narrative of Rome. Uh, now, um, so, okay, so there's supposedly, there's these children. Um, another thing about Kirke is her, she has a niece, and her niece is uh, the goddess, um, is Medea, uh, the one who is part of the, <clears throat> the central figure of the Argonautica. Uh, Euripides has a play about her. She is the one who um, falls in love with Jason when he comes to Colchis to claim the Golden Fleece. She is the one who actually gets the golden fleece for him, or she, you know, puts the dragon to sleep so that he can go steal the fleece. Uh, but then she they end up murdering um, her brother, and Kirke has to come along and and purify them because that's only part of it was if you if you killed someone you had to go to an oracle or to a king or to somebody with authority who could provide purification rituals for your crime, and Kirke. Um, she performed the rituals for them, but she basically said, I don't really absolve you of this crime, okay? Um, because she is, um, <clears throat> uh, among, among Kirke's other, you know, re- relations, um, uh, Aites, uh, who's the king of, of Colchis, the one that Jason stole the fleece from, is her, in fact, her brother. Um, and, uh, you know, Pacify is also her sister, the wife of King Minos and the mother of the Minotaur, okay? So she's got, um, you know, there's a lot of these very um, strange uh, or, or, or very dark or mysterious feminine connections when we talk about Kirke, seemingly regardless of the mythology. Um, now, later on in Roman periods, uh, the Roman period, you do see, um, you know, she is mentioned in the Aeneid, um, when Aeneas, of course, avoids Kirke's island, okay, he does not um, go there. He manages to avoid it um, because she, again, is seen as somebody with all these, you know, the, the the souls of men who were turned into animals. I mean, that theme is still played out. And Ovid's Metamorphosis mentions a story of Kirke uh, where she... Um, uh, <clears throat> You know, she, you know, in, 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 of course, in the Roman, uh, Odysseus is known as Ulysses, so they do talk about that encounter. But the, but the story of interest here has to do with uh, Scylla and Charybdis. Uh, Scylla was a beautiful nymph also, um, and she was, uh, and there was a sea, mo- um, 
a sea god called Glaucus, or sort of a sea spirit, and he, he was in love with Scylla. So he what he did was he went to Kirke and asked to get a love potion to make um, Scylla fall in love with him. Well, Kirke fell in love with Glaucus and wanted to seduce him, but he was not interested. He was interested in Scylla. So um, in, her, in her jealous rage, Kirke went and poisoned the waters where Scylla bathed every day, and so when she went to bathe, she was turned into this hideous monster, you know, with, you know, baying wolves, you know, heads and, you know, multiple heads and, you know, um, you know, this, this sort of monstrous serpent-like body. Um, and, and, and Scylla is one of those, um, is often pulled with, uh, put, you know, put together with Charybdis, which is who's basically a, um, a monstrous interpretation of a giant whirlpool. And... Both of these, these were said to be, I'm trying to remember which strait they were said to be part of initially. Um, I think I've kind of forgotten it because more evidence tends to show that what's actually called the Strait of Scylla, um, down in sort of the Mediterranean and Aegean region, the Strait of Scylla um, actually seems to match the description. In other words, there's some craggy rocks there that if your ship got too close to them, you know, you could run aground or, you know, you know, people could fall off or be snagged by the rocks. But the problem was if you tried to steer away from it, you would steer into a giant whirlpool. And that was, you know, like Charybdis. So it was kind of like when people talk about being between Scylla and Charybdis or, you know, uh, or the devil in the deep blue sea, as it were, um, or between a rock and a hard place. Um, that's, that's, those are all metaphors for Scylla and Charybdis, and they become metaf- kind of psychological metaphors between, you know, for being in a bad place. But literally, sailors would have, would have had a very difficult time navigating that strait. I think, oh, that was it, it was the Straits of Messina is what they originally were talking about them, um, as being the sort of, um, real-life site, if you will, of these, these, um, outgrowths of these these um, natural formations that were so dangerous to sailors, but um, I remember reading that the Strait of Scylla actually does, you know, in spite of the name, you know, the name name fits, but also the uh, circumstances. So, so she's turning, so she turns men into pigs, she turns another nymph into a monster, supposedly out of uh, jealousy. Um, and what's interesting um, is the way in which all of these um, you know, represent, when we, when we talk about fear of the feminine or what people are afraid of in terms of the feminine, she seems to be kind of a good um, archetypal model of that, if you will. Um, I find myself, I had made a note to myself, I was comparing the, her enchantments of Kirke with those of the, of the lotus eaters, you know, the people who eat the, um, eat, the, eat the enchanted flower. Now they don't turn into animals, but they kind of become forgetful. It's like they become stuck. You know, I don't, I don't want to move from this place. There's that, that again, that sense of um, a sort of unnatural peace or that unnatural sense of um, still where something's not really right about it um, because life is not like that. Life, um, we, we have moments of stillness and there are moments when we should be still, but it's, uh, it's about... Um, you know, but ultimately life is about change and about movement. I mean, death is ultimately about change and movement and about things not being what they were. So things can't stay where they are, no matter how pleasant they may be at a particular point or how, you know, however, whatever the feeling is, you know, those feelings will come and go. They will go up and down like waves, you know. And um, so in this case, you know, I, I always kind of look at the very psychological nature of the Odyssey and, you know, how that can kind of almost represent a, a, 
the lotus eaters representing an impulse to sort of not want to grow up. And with Kirke, this is sort of the way in which men are sort of poorly equipped to deal with the feminine, as it were. Um, and the way in which they kind of need this, um, this intervention to be able to negotiate it. And again, if we're looking at an archetypal level, when we look at the things that um, Odysseus does, it's like it's almost like Jacob's struggle with the angel. You know, it's uh, it's it's struggling with that force that's within you um, that could potentially, if it overpowers you, I mean that that can that can make you very weak. It can make you do stupid things for love. It can make you do. Um, it can just make you completely. I, I think I compare it to the Lotus Eaters because there is a sense of kind of wanting to. Um, just drop out one whose uh, total devotion might be to a, a particular woman or a particular woman who f or a particular person who fills that anima role. Okay, and uh, so I, I kind of so I so I tend to look at that as um, you know there's that so again I, I only I tend to associate that with the the fear of emasculation the idea that um, the man is not in control of the situation that the woman is. Okay. Uh, another interesting thing about Kirke is that when they come, uh, she is singing and she is weaving on a giant loom. Now, one of the things that um, has been talked about, and I may have mentioned this in this podcast before. In fact, I'm almost certain I have, so I apologize if I'm being repetitive. But the notion of um, women's mythology, like the weaver as the... Um, and so, rather than the, the, the hero who battles his way and goes to the underworld and, you know, cuts his way from the belly of the beast, which is a very, um, it's a very highly masculine kind of mythology that, you know, uh, I, my same um, dissertation um, supervisor had said to me, you know, not just to me, but to my class, you know, what, what would the woman's myth look like? And, you know, we, you know, like I said, you talk about Eros and Psyche, but um, this is the idea that, uh, you know, the, the woman who weaves. I believe April Shaley and I had this conversation in the Morrigan episode. That's where I'm remembering it from. But the woman who weaves, because the woman who weaves, in a way, she, she like I said, she's, she's taking things. She almost has the role of one of the fates, you know, because that's what the fates do. They spin the thread, they, they, they measure the length of your life, and then they cut the thread at the end. And what they're doing is they're weaving together the tapestry of life. So Kirke almost has this kind of underlying... Um, Role and and it makes sense because the feminine is also something we think of as that which generates life, whether it be an actual biological human life or whether it be um, you know in, in the sense of the muses, a creative idea or um, an inspiration or, or you know some some other kind of um, thing that one could quote unquote give birth to uh, and offer to the world. So um, so she has all of these these attributes of femininity. And the story emphasizes the ones that, that are a danger when the men focus too much um, on the sort of um, <clears throat> pleasurable aspects. Let's say, like as, as one um, account says, you know, some people have turned it into kind of a story about um, a, moral, a morality tale about getting drunk, uh, which is not really what I, don't, I think it's intended to be. Um, but it is the idea of, of, of balancing that energy. I mean, you don't, uh, you don't want feminine energy out of control any more than you want masculine energy out of control. So uh, the fact that they kind of enact this little ritual between them, and then they come to an understanding, and then Kirke's actually able to help him. The reason he ultimately fails at what she tells him to do is not so much because of himself, but because of his men. 
because they don't um she tells them when you go to the island of the sun the island of helios that's what they're like their last stop before they would get to ithaca she said whatever you do don't touch any of the cattle there don't eat them don't kill them don't you know stay away from them and um you know these these are her father's cattle but of course they're there and there's no wind and they're getting very hungry and the men think well you know maybe if we just sacrifice one and do this and then of course because they violated the dictum helios complains to zeus zeus destroys their ships and so odysseus is left simply clinging to um you know uh, you know a board until he um floats away to the island of calypso another nymph who also kind of serves an anima role so it's like you know one female leaves off and, and she advises him to a point but then when he um so then he's put through this process it, it really in a way that's that's kind of a rebirth process for odysseus because he's um he ends up on this island with calypso he stalled there for about seven years and then finally, um, Athena again comes with Hermaeus. Okay, same same kind of structure, which is why sometimes the stories of Calypso and Circe end up being confused. I think in in some later literature and some other literatures. And uh, they tell Calypso, "Nope, he's got to go." So he builds himself a boat, and um, but Poseidon's still angry at him. So when Poseidon realizes he's left the island and is on the seas again, he sends a massive storm. And so and the only thing that saves Odysseus is that one of there's a nymph, uh, Ino, who gives him her veil. And if he holds on to her veil, she he won't drown. So he ends up kind of being belched naked onto the shore. So here's a man who was a great warrior, who had everything, you know, who fought for years, you know, seasoned warrior, almost 20 years of fighting, um, you know, attacking, looting, picking up concubines, you know, all the stuff that, you know, all the wonderful stuff that went along um, with warfare in those days. And um, and he gets belched onto the shores of the island of Sherry, where he ends up meeting uh, Nausicaa, the princess. She's probably like 12 years old, and she's doing her laundry. Not something you tend to think of with princesses, but there's definitely an element of, okay, your old life is dead, now you're being reborn again. And he's almost being reborn in a more feminine way. Uh, Tiresias tells him, you know, you will go back to Ithaca and you will plant your oar. That implies something that's more domestic, which is why later accounts of him going back on the high seas don't really fit, at least if we're looking at that work in that in that way. But um, the idea is that he will become more domestic, that he will stay at home. He will not be this roving, restless warrior. Um, he will be he will be honoring more of the feminine side of himself. So, you know, it's kind of like these figures that appear to make this, uh, you know, to, you know, through whatever their trials are, whatever their manipulations and their tricks. Um, in the end, if he, he successfully negotiates it, then he will, um, he will come out to be a more, a more whole person. Uh, those who don't, they're, <laughs> they're turned to pigs. They, they, they go back to their baser instincts, which is not usually the, um, the better side of either masculinity or femininity. It's, um... You know, but but on the other hand, it is it is sort of a a, a part of things. Uh, you'll see in later literature, there's a lot of um, discussion about you know uh, it, when if uh, Kirke lets Odysseus uh, interview one of the pigs, and the pigs are kind of saying, well, you know, this is actually kind of better than being a person, you know. So you know, there's there's a whole um, discussion about the uh, you know um, you know about about the the, the sort of her turning people into animals and what does that mean does that mean something negative is it merely exposing a certain part of our nature that we tend to uh dismiss or forget about i think we tend to look at it in a very negative sense um 
in, you know, in, in, you know, in, in a kind of culture, an ethical culture that says that, you know, we should be taming our animalistic impulses, okay? Um, and maybe that's, maybe, maybe you could take that away from this. I mean, I'm sure the men, you certainly don't get the impression that they were happy being turned into pigs. But, um, but it is kind of a caution about how when one gets involved with the anima, as, as Jung says, you know, the man, he describes it in an interview. There's a wonderful interview out there with Jung later in his life where he talks about uh, the anima and the animus. And he says, um, he says, I will have a man come to me and, you know, and he is with the woman and he knows she is, she is a hell of a business, that she's no good. And he will say to me, doctor, help me to get rid of this woman. He says, she, and Jung says, he can't. She's, he's like clay in her fingers. And he says, and that is the archetype. It's not until the projection is withdrawn. Whatever the, that strong anima image, whatever that this strong, very powerful feminine, um, whatever this image is, um, you know, again, you can't, you can't possibly define it in any kind of concrete terms. It's just something in each individual, they kind of know it when they see it for themselves. And it doesn't always um, have to do with a, a particular look uh, or even a particular personality trait. It's just, there's just something. Because you know, you will fall for somebody and then it's like, it does not matter how the relationship, this is why people stay in bad relationships or we'll say because they are just so drawn in they're almost powerless to do anything um, because the pain of, of separating is so great. So this is this is this is the um, and, you know and if you're a man in that situation feeling that way about a woman, you know then people kind of act like oh well you know she's she's got him wrapped around her finger right. I mean not that that couldn't go either way, but it's just um, but you know it seems it's more acceptable for a woman to be needing a man right. Um, but it's not except the other way around. It's just kind of like oh well that's emasculating. And that is the um, yeah, interpretation there. So it's very interesting. Um, but it's, you know, but yeah, there seems to be almost this counterbalancing of this masculine against the devouring feminine, kind of like, I think of Tiamat and Marduk, you know, you know you're the, the, the great mother earth that actually becomes the firmament of the earth um, is cut into pieces by Marduk um, because now she's the mother of everything that threatens to devour everything. Um, and you have this... Um, this sort of, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> and over time, just like we saw with the Arrhenius or the Furies and with some of these other figures, over time they go from being goddesses in their own right that represent a complex group of feminine aspects or traits, um, some of which are dangerous, some of which are, are pleasant, and we tend to see an emphasis on the negative side of that as some, you know, negative thing to be avoided. Not surprising when you start to see Roman influence come in, and especially since Romans were influenced by the philosophers and also by Judaic thinking, because um, certainly in Proverbs you have the idea of beware of the foreign woman who will drag you down to Sheol, you know, who will bring you to your death through her her foreign temptations. And it's funny, they do use, the, at least in some versions of it, they do use the word foreign. Sometimes they use the word loose. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's an interesting, you know, why does, you know, one, one translates it at loose and one is foreign. In, in short, it's, re, it's referring to it as something that's other, okay? And, um, and we can see why there's this unconscious mythology of the man who, um, you know, maybe gets involved with a woman that he shouldn't, maybe somebody who's underage or somebody, and they'll say, well, or what was she wearing? Or what was she doing? You know, and uh, we, we, call, we call people out for that now. We're like, hey, you know what? She can wear whatever she wants. 
But there are people who will try to say, well, you know, if she, you know, she's so concerned about men looking at her, but look at how she dresses. I heard that the other day. <clears throat> Not about me, but about, and I kind of turned around and said, excuse me? Um, it's not, um, you know, it, it becomes this, uh, you know, it becomes a way of blaming the woman because the woman is perceived, the woman is mistaken for the anima. She's perceived as having this dangerous quality, okay? And it's important to remember that because you need to be able to separate you, the, the average living female from the anima. You know, when, when you see the anima in the woman, that's because you're projecting it onto her, not because... Um, she necessarily is all of that. And frequently, it's an image, it is an image that no woman could ever live up to, just like the animus in its best form is not something a man could ever live up to. You have to be able to separate from the archetype and still, and if you still care about the person, then what you have is actual love, okay? Um, oftentimes, that projection is just a gateway. Because when, you know, because, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, you think, oh, they're just perfect, you know? Everything about them is perfect. And then, you know, as you, as you get to know them and the projection is withdrawn, you know, the reality sets in, then you start to see all of their imperfections. And God forbid you get married, because then it's like, then you really see it. <laughs> um, or you live together, and, and you really start to see it. And uh, so it can change. And I've often said that when people get married, um, it doesn't always have to, have to happen, but unfortunately it frequently does, where the wife... Once somebody is no longer the girlfriend uh, or, the, the, you know, whatever, and that person becomes the spouse, um, and I'm going to say the wife in particular in this case, wife then becomes mama. And the expectation is that, oh, okay, we're husband and wife now, so now I'm going to role play what mom and dad did, you know, when I was growing up. And I'm exp you know, whatever that is for you, that's kind of your expectation of your spouse, that your spouse is going to do what your mother did. And your female spouse, if, if assuming, again, assuming heterosexual relationship to man-woman, um, that does tend to become the assumption. And the thing is, it's very unconscious, you know, <clears throat> um, it, and it can happen overnight. Um, I could tell you stories from my own life. I can tell you stories from other people's lives. Uh, <clears throat> and it, it just, you know, overnight, there's, there's, um, you, you've changed from being one type of feminine to being another. You've changed from being, um, and, and the mother, because there has been a separation from the mother as one grows up and develops, uh, there's more of a disdain for that. You know, it's more just kind of like, it, they, the person is almost considered to have to have a more subservient kind of a role, if that's what they're used to. Okay. So, again, so it's, so these are all things that if, if you find them playing out in your life and in your relationships, you really want to pay attention are you allowing yourself to be unconsciously driven by the archetype? Because that's the way that we actually can use rationality as a tool to stop and go, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to repeat that pattern. I don't have to accept that viewpoint. Um, and I accept that I'm having these particular feelings or that this archetype is affecting me in this way. But I don't necessarily have to, my actions don't necessarily just have to go along with that. I, I, can, I can try to balance it. doesn't mean you can get rid of it. You can't, again, you cannot eradicate it. You cannot stamp it out. And, you know, the more you try to repress it, the more it's going to have a hold on you. But by, by acknowledging that, yeah, you know what, I feel this way. Um, at some point, I won't feel this way. And you just kind of weather your way through it. And yes, there is a kind of suffering attached, especially if the person doesn't reciprocate or especially if it doesn't, you know, it's not all that it, it's cracked up to be. Um, and that's one of the things about love. You know, you take the risk for the ecstasy of it and it can be a brutal disappointment. So you just kind of have to um, recognize that that's, that's just part of the process and that some of this is just the way that the archetype um, injects itself as you go through life.
Okay. And Kirke, I feel, is, is a representation of that. Um, yeah, and I, I have notes here, too, is, is, as time goes on, as I was, I was starting to say about how, um, you know, we, we see that the way the Furies go from being goddesses to being kind of these evil tormentors. Similarly, you have Kirke, who is a daughter of the sun goddess. You know, she's got the, the fire and water in her, actually. She's actually almost like the, the temperance figure in a way, one foot in the water and one, you know, on the earth. Um, and, and which also makes her liminal in a way, too. She's kind of on, on both, both sides of things. And she has these powers, and she's, she, she knows the ways of the earth. She's definitely a nature goddess. The way that she becomes a witch, and of course, witch ends up having a very negative connotation uh, later on, um, because anyone who has this kind of magical knowledge is considered to be, um, you know, uh, that's considered to be, you know, against God's law or, or whatever, whatever it is. There's definitely a sense that um, those who have a knowledge of things of the earth uh, are somehow, um, you know, wicked or associated with the devil or, or you know, you know, untrustworthy or evil or, you know, it becomes aligned with a, with a, a def definitive negative. And so, therefore, she she becomes this sorceress um, who was uh, going around doing horrible things to men until Odysseus put her in her place. That's what that's what it becomes after a while, and she becomes a representation of the scheming, conniving woman. Uh, so it's it's interesting, you know. So again, we see how these ideas of the feminine in a society that has implied rationality, that has applied ethics to its religion, that has talked about a dichotomy between good and evil, how this ends up, you know, being put through the meat grinder of that and coming out on the other side um, as something not originally what it was, um, and that does not get the full richness of the archetype of the, or the figure, <clears throat> which again, like Inanna, like Arishkakal, like a lot of these other goddesses, it, ultimately, she's not really either good or evil. She's sort of a, a natural force, and she represents something that can be like a lot of tricky trickster forces or liminal forces. They can be dangerous, and they can be helpful. It all depends. Um, it's just a matter of that's those are the places where you want to use your rationality and your wit, okay, um, to, uh, to stay on balance so that you don't get thrown off balance. But if you do get thrown off balance, do understand that that may be part of the process too. So with that, I just want to say... I think I will try to end. I'll try to keep this concise this week. Um, I'm going to be, this is this is for mid-November, so probably our next episode is going to be talking about uh, the Black Madonna or the Black Virgin and some of her manifestations. Um, I'll be talking with Ellen Jones, um, who also goes by the Spiral Priestess, who developed the wonderful Dark Mother's deck that um, I like to use sometimes in our, um, uh, you know, in, when I do my uh, patron videos. So um, I, she and I will be having this conversation. Uh, that should be our next episode. And again, as I've said to patrons, I've gotten a couple suggestions for episodes, so thanks to my patrons for, for providing those. Um, uh, but certainly if there are any others, uh, you know, do let me know. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Instagram. And, uh, you know, and I'm all, you know, under, you know, Cthonia, either Cthonia Podcast uh, on Facebook and on Twitter um, and on Instagram. I'm on Cthonia podcast, and in uh, one word, I think, on Twitter, two words on Facebook, um, and one word on Instagram, and then, of course, on YouTube, it's just Cthonia. Um, so, and I've had a bunch of new subscribers lately. Thank you so much. My, you know, stats on this are going up, and I'm, I'm really happy. Um, 
And also, uh, you know, if you want to join Patreon, if you're interested in supporting this work, I mean, I, I, and aside from the podcast, I'm also looking to offer more classes. Um, I have some published works. I'm working on some new stuff. I have um, the Cthonia.net website. Um, it, it needs a little bit of updating to make it a little less, um, I think some aspects of it are a little clunky, but, um, well, you know, I'm, I've, I've got to get a plan in place to get all that straightened out by the beginning of next year. But nonetheless, it's still very navigable. So please take a look, and uh, you know. And if you're interested in these projects, Patreon.com/Cathonia. Uh, you can, uh, you know, you're, you know, if you want to um, donate towards this work, I would be extremely grateful. I say thank you to all my existing patrons, and we will talk in the next episode.